the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya podcast. Today, three topics included in this show. Hitler, Hunter Biden, and soap. It's all coming up. Now, it's time for some sanity. It's the Michelle Tafoya podcast. All right, as I said, uh, three very interesting topics today. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fast moving. Before we get into it, I want to remind you ladies out there to look in the mirror and ask yourself about those dark spots on your skin, because I promise you they're not going to go away on their own. That's where Genucel comes in and introducing the dark spot corrector from Genucel. It is just in time for those last few glorious months of summer. The dark spot corrector with not one, but three cutting edge ingredients goes to work fast to target sunspots, dark spots, liver spots, whatever the, the discoloration on your hands and your face. You're going to be amazed at how quickly this stuff works. You can now enjoy your summer sun, your barbecues, your beach, whatever you're doing with yourself without the embarrassing spots. With Genucel, you will see results or your money back. No questions asked. So go to Genucel.com right now. Get your dark spot corrector with the new Genucel most popular package. Now featuring summer essentials like the best-selling ultra retinol moisturizer with a powerful retinol alternative that's safe to use in the summer sun. Visit Genucel.com slash Michelle right now for these amazing summer essentials and save over 70% off Genucel's most popular package. Don't wait. Order Genucel's most popular package today. Free shipping, free returns, and the best luxury skincare you've ever used, all at 70% off. G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash Michelle. Genucel dot com slash Michelle with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E. All orders will include a mystery luxury gift while supplies last. Get on it. Genucel dot com slash Michelle. So Hunter Biden. Um, you know, I, I've often commented on how Joe Biden speaks very declaratively. Mr. President, have you ever spoken with your son about his business dealings? No, I have never spoken to my, never. I have never spoken to my children. So you kind of got to ask yourself, why does he give himself absolutely no wiggle room? Here's a recent quote from the president, and I respect the office of the presidency, but this one You've got to hear. I think Joe thinks he may have cured cancer. Let's listen. If you could do anything at all, Joe, what would you do? I said I'd cure cancer. They looked at me like, why cancer? Because no one thinks we can. That's why. And we can. We ended cancer as we know it. We've ended cancer as we know it. Well, I would say every day we're ending cancer as we know it because you know, treatments are coming all the time. So cancer, as we know it, actually is changing every day. But that's just another statement by the president that shows kind of a, a lack of connection with reality. There's a great piece in the Wall Street Journal. You'd go to prison for what Hunter Biden did. 
I'm going to give it to you in pieces here. While the U.S. attorney for Delaware was negotiating for Hunter Biden to plead to two misdemeanor tax charges, other things were happening in neighboring New Jersey. Last week, U.S. District Judge Stanley R. Chesler sentenced Gabriel M. Ferrari, owner of a Linden auto repair shop, to one year and one day in prison after Mr. Ferrari pleaded guilty to filing a false company tax return. That's in New Jersey. His return failed to include all of his income and claimed deductions for personal expenses, including gambling on horse races. In addition to the prison term, he will be required to pay restitution. You notice the parallel there? Prison for tax crimes is real. In the 1990s, New York hotelier Leona Helmsley served nearly two years in prison for defrauding the government by having her business pay her personal expenses and claim tax deductions for them. According to sworn and transcribed testimony that IRS, International Revenue Service, whistleblowers provided to the House Ways and Means Committee and confirmed at last week's open House Oversight Committee hearing, the IRS investigation of Hunter Biden began as, quote, an offshoot of an investigation the IRS was conducting into a foreign-based amateur online pornography platform. This is delightful. Agents established that for the six years, uh, 2014 through 2019, Mr. Biden failed to report or pay tax on perhaps $17.3 million he received from questionable sources. Didn't pay tax on That's income. And he didn't pay taxes on it. He filed returns several years late. And when he did file them, he claimed as business deductions the cost of his drug dealer's hotel room, call girls, sex club membership dues, and his daughter's tuition at Columbia University. What has been called Hunter Biden's sweetheart plea deal, however, wasn't the subject of the House Oversight Committee's July 19th hearing, where the two whistleblowers testified. Instead, lawmakers intended to explore ways in which the IRS special agents said the Justice Department had thwarted their probe and violated law enforcement norms. Among them, one, Denying permission to execute search warrants for which prosecutors agreed probable cause had been established, including the guest house Hunter Biden had occupied at President Biden's Delaware home and the storage facility in Virginia, where he reportedly had moved records of the numerous entities he had likely used to receive income from various sources. Number two, stalling investigative steps on account of an upcoming election six months away, whereas the Justice Department tradition is to refrain from indicting or taking over investigative steps for only 60 days preceding an election, 60 days, and this was stalling it uh, six months in advance, alerting the attorneys for the subject of the investigation that a search warrant would be executed to obtain documents and other evidence, denying authority to interview essential witnesses, including family members and business associates, including those who could shed light on the meaning of 10% held by H for the big guy. Looked at with the full picture in mind, it is difficult not to wonder if those lines of investigation would have found evidence that Joe Biden was involved in his son's apparent shakedowns of foreign government and entities. In parentheses, they write, the president has repeatedly denied ever discussing business matters with his son. I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business. I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else 
anything having to do with their businesses, period. Do you stand by your statement that you did not discuss any of your son's overseas business Yes, I stand by that statement. I thought the article released the thing on online. It's going to be printed tomorrow in time. It's good. I think it's clear. And uh, anyway, um, if you get a chance, give me a call. I love you. As I said, I have never spoken to my son. Although in the last uh, couple of days, that change has in tone or at least in verbiage has changed from the White House press secretary who now says the president was never in business with his son. That's a, that's a significant change in verbiage. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Democrats on the Oversight Committee accused the witnesses of being overly enthusiastic about bringing criminal charges and cited testimony that IRS criminal tax attorneys often disagreed with their prosecution recommendations. That's irrelevant. Again, this is Wall Street Journal editorial. IRS criminal tax lawyers' timidity about recommending prosecution is common knowledge in the tax enforcement community. Further, their views are advisory only. Officials in the Justice Department's tax division decide whether to authorize bringing criminal charges. And they did. The special agent report was sent to the tax division in February 2021. It was more than a thousand pages long describing each element of each alleged crime for each year, each piece of the evidence supporting each element, and the venue in which those charges could be brought. More than a year after the tax division received the report, it produced a 99-page memorandum supporting the recommended charges, six felonies and five misdemeanors. Each of these charges can carry prison time, some of them as long as five years. Supervisory Special Agent Gary Shapley testified that Mr. Weiss told the prosecution team he then approached the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia about filing the 2014 and 15 charges there and was rebuffed. Notwithstanding that Hunter Biden's attorneys had extended the statute of limitations several times and would have again, Mr. Weiss let it expire. For the government to permit the statute of limitations to expire is unheard of. When a taxpayer refuses a government request to extend the statute of limitations, the government goes ahead and brings the charges. According to the whistleblowers, that couldn't happen here because, contrary to Attorney General Merrick Garland's sworn statements to Congress, Mr. Weiss lacked the authority to bring charges in the District of Columbia. For many years, it has been the Justice Department policy to charge the most serious offense that can be proven. Mr. Garland changed that policy in December of 2022. 
The tax division manual, however, still provides that prosecutors are specifically prohibited from permitting a defendant to plead to a misdemeanor when the elements of a felony can be proven. Yet, according to the whistleblower's accounts, that is what is happening here. In 2020, the Justice Department realized that the prosecution of Lieutenant General Mike Flynn had been based on falsehoods and filed a motion in the federal district court to dismiss the charges. The judge believed the motion to dismiss was politically motivated and appointed John Gleason, a retired federal judge, to look into the matter. Judge Gleason filed a brief asserting that the judge wasn't obligated to accept an attempt to embroil the judiciary into a corrupt, politically motivated decision. On one Wednesday, Judge Mary Ellen Nor... I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin her name. Norika will be presented with the scandalously lenient plea deal Mr. Weiss worked out for Hunter Biden, under which he would suffer no penalty for years of serious and willful violations of U.S. tax laws. Will she accept it? Again, the title of this piece, you'd go to prison for what Hunter Biden did. In reaching his plea deal, the Justice Department violated every norm in the tax enforcement book. And this is commentary by Eileen J. O'Connor. It's not the whole Wall Street Journal opinion uh, board or panel or however you want to. So it, but it's a fascinating piece and it's convincing. And the bottom line is the headline. You go to jail for this. And some people in neighboring New Jersey, not far from Wilmington, Delaware, are going to prison for lying on their tax records. This should bug you. This should very much bug you. All right, next story should also bother you. And because this, again, has, well, it has to do with your freedom of speech, which, as Dennis Prager told us in a recent episode, is his biggest concern about America right now. This is from the Free Press, Barry Weiss's publication. My family, and I I often mention Barry Weiss, and for those who don't know who she is, she used to write for the New York Times. She resigned very publicly, wrote an open letter about why she was resigning, because the New York Times was ignoring a lot of factual stuff and being very one-sided in its news coverage. And so she left, and now she started this very successful independent project called the free press, which I've gifted to a number of friends because it is so, it's balanced. It has opinions from all over the political spectrum and reporting that is very good, including this. My family was hunted by Nazis, but I was fired after, quote, defending Hitler. David Volodsko criticized Lenin in the Seattle Times. Now he is without a job a story of profound intolerance in our country's most tolerant city, Seattle. Really? I think that's kind of a pun there. David Yosef Volodsko writes the following for the free press. I was just fired from my job at the Seattle times after defending Hitler. The only problem is I never defended Hitler. In fact, my family was hunted by the Nazis. My grandfather was a Nazi killer who later almost died in a concentration camp. And some of my best journalistic work has been exposing neo-Nazi lies. 
But if you want to hear a story about the intolerance in our country's quote unquote, his, his quotes, most tolerant city and the erosion of civil discourse in American life, read on. I began my career as a university lecturer of English and logic. Then drawn by the need to tell stories of structural oppression, I switched to journalism. I've been a journalist for the past 15 years and have spent all, almost all of my adult life in Asia, four years in Japan, six in South Korea, three in China, one year traveling Southeast Asia, and two in Nepal and India, where for a short period, I was homeless in Mumbai. But that's another story. My work is largely focused on East Asian politics and culture, everything from sexism in South Korean to the terrifying, terrifying rise of Nazi chic in Mongolia. I wrote about North Korean refugees and Europe's racist oppression to the Syrian refugee crisis. While living in Israel, I wrote about Gilad Shalit, the Israeli soldier who was held by Hamas for five years until he was released in a prisoner exchange in 2011. Perhaps the reason I'm drawn to hard stories as a far, in far-flung places is because of my family background. After Vladimir Lenin turned Russian into one giant gulag, my family was scattered like leaves. My grandparents became refugees. They settled in Patterson, New Jersey. And for the rest of his life, my grandfather sent boxes of whole cloth, candles, paper, and other essentials to his beloved family, whom he could never see again. So when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022, I flew to Eastern Europe to cover the war. My work on Ukrainian refugees resulted in more than one story, including a piece for New York Magazine about a therapist who helped a woman find the strength to flee her home amid explosions, saving her life and the life of her mother and daughter. I was never prouder of the work I'd done. About one year later, having recently moved from rural Georgia from my wife's native Peru, moving to rural Georgia from my wife's native Peru, I received a job offer from the Seattle Times to be an editorial board member and columnist. Our entire family had moved to Georgia together, including my parents, my brother, and his wife, so it was a tough call. But after consideration, we sold our house. My wife and baby daughter flew to Seattle. I drove the moving truck. I knew to Seattle only by reputation, the great outdoors of the Pacific Northwest, a vibrant Asian community, a strong Latino community, too. So our daughter could grow up with Spanish-speaking friends and residents who routinely approved tax hikes to ensure those in need of help received it. I should mention that our politics fit the bill. I'm a Democratic Socialist, and my wife is a DEI trainer. Suffice it to say, the city felt like a great fit. The job was rewarding. From the first day, I found myself reporting on the protection of orcas and efforts to improve the level of civil discourse in Congress. When Pride Month came, my family proudly marched in the, with the Seattle Times. What a beautiful new home, I thought to myself. How inclusive. How tolerant. How naive. Earlier this month, for my first official column, my boss urged me to write about the local statue of Vladimir Lenin that stands in Seattle's Fremont neighborhood. The good people of Fremont enjoy dressing him up in tutus, Halloween costumes, and the like. I was more interested in writing about the astronomical cost of childcare in the city, but it wasn't hard to make the column all my own. I simply had to talk about my refugee grandparents uh, making... Oh, John, my producer, may have to 
help me with this because he knows so much about this stuff and I don't. I simply had to talk to about my refugee grandparents making pelmeni with my babushka. Is that a food, John? Pelmeni? Do you know? Uh, that has to be some sort of Slavic dish. Yeah. The okay. babushka. Is, I, think, babushka. I, think that, I think that's a grandma. Babushka? Yeah, I think so too. I, I think so. And my grandfather, Yosef, the Nazi killer after whom I'm named. I noted Lenin's secret police raids, mass torture, forced resettlements, and genocidal killings. The column began by reflecting on Karl Marx's last words as a London-based correspondent for the New York Daily Tribune, in which he, quote, attacked the hypocrisy of Westerners who defend sacred values only when it suits them. In other words, it was about selective outrage rather than the statue itself. I concluded by saying I'm a democratic proceduralist who supports the community's decision to keep the statue, even if it deeply offends me. Readers thanked me. Some shared stories of their own families fleeing Russia or told me how their grandmothers broke down weeping when they reached America, only to find Lenin staring down at them in the land of the free. Many critics claimed I had advocated for tearing the statue down. Perhaps the most common criticism I received was that no one takes the statue seriously. Oh, but they do. They admire it. The day after my column was published, I received my first response. The Seattle Times is so desperate for new staff, they hire folks from rural Georgia for their editorial board? Another wrote, we don't need more faux outrage. Another reminded me that it was the Soviets who, quote, single-handedly defeated Nazi Germany. Single-handedly? And that the statue was, quote, simply a funky piece of art. Still another, you missed the point. It is a joke. I also received a flood of positive responses. People shared family stories and photos. A retired high school history teacher said my piece was excellent. Someone else called the column an exemplar of reporting as civic leadership. Every touch is perfect. One letter came from a descendant of Western Ukrainian stock who said the statue should stay, quote, as a testament to the failure of communism. A Lithuanian refugee called it recalled living long enough to see statues of Lenin fall in Vilnius and sadly pondered whether she would live long enough to see them fall in America. I responded to almost every email and tried to be gracious, even to the nasty ones. A few I even won over. But I made a mistake when I posted the column on Twitter and compared Lenin and Hitler. Here's what I wrote. Quote, in fact, while Hitler has become the great symbol of evil in history books, he too was less evil than Lenin because Hitler only targeted people he personally believed were harmful to society, whereas Lenin targeted even those he himself didn't believe were harmful in any way. Unquote. I was only speaking in terms of intention, of who wanted to kill more, not who actually did. And in a follow-up follow tweet, I explain, Hitler was more evil than Lenin if we're looking at what they did to people, and that's a pretty important metric for assessing evil exclamation point. Let me be absolutely clear. Actually killing more people, which Hitler did, is more evil. Lenin killed 4 million people, possibly up to 8 million, whereas Hitler killed roughly 20 million, including 6 million Jews. Quote, 
in terms of death and destruction, the Nazis were more evil, unquote, I wrote on my Twitter. I also wrote, quote, Hitler was more evil in terms of how many he killed. It's the kind of topic that you can debate among trusted friends over drinks or dinner. But Twitter is very much not that kind of place. And the argument I was making is a fraught one, even under the best circumstances. You don't need to compare anyone to Hitler to argue that they are evil. And my delivery was poor, to say the least. Four days after I started making these points on Twitter, I deleted the thread. That said, I do believe that in our culture, many people have very little conception. The communist leaders, Mao, Stalin, Pol Pot, have a far higher body count than fascists, nor do they appreciate that Lenin was more ambitious in this regard than Hitler. His aim, Lenin's aim, was to kill as many people as he possibly could, all ages, classes, faiths, ethnicities, and regions. Nevertheless, people insisted I was quote-unquote defending Hitler. If, if you can't see me, I'm shaking my head. Hey, John, you know a lot about this topic. I see you ready to chime in here. I can't believe this guy sounds like a pretty well-meaning democratic socialist, which I would say is basically just a socialist. But I, I don't understand the purpose of comparing these two, for one. What is to be accomplished here? Uh, uh, Paul Johnson, well-known historian, I think he recently passed away, British historian, but of, of all history. This guy covers everything. And he makes the point. He says uh, Hitler very clearly built on what Lenin did when he built the SS and the SA, he was mirroring it off what they did with the NKVD, the the predecessor to the KGB. And he also points out that Lenin took, Lenin built the first super state oppressive state. That really was the, on a scale that had never been seen, but he based that on the Kaiser's state capitalism, state socialism model. So you had this very bizarre interaction back and forth between Germany and Russia in that period. And you can credit Germany with getting Lenin to Russia. The, the reason they, they ferried him back on a train to, to Russia because they thought he would collapse the state and said what he did is they, they had the revolution. And then he borrowed from the Kaiser's state capitalist setup and basically had the state take over every facet of everybody's life. And I have to agree with the writer. Lenin, you could say... Hitler Germany is gone and it was gone really quick. Lenin's monstrosity is in a way still with us and still affecting geopolitics on a daily basis. And I think it is more pernicious. If I had to pick one, yeah, I'd say Lenin more pernicious, the state he built, but it's a pointless debate. They're both evil. They're both adding evil. up the numbers, adding up the numbers. What a, it's pointless. They're, it's what, pointless. What's and the end says, game there? Uh, again, picking up, and that's great context. Nevertheless, people insisted I was, quote unquote, defending Hitler. They called me a Nazi. They told me to kill myself or suggested they'd do it for me. A local journalist claimed my ancestors were Nazis who slaughtered Ukrainian Jews by the tens of thousands. I have been targeted by tankies and neo-Nazis on Twitter before, but this felt different, more widespread. It also seemed a number of my Seattle-based critics were using my words to go after the editorial board, which is viewed by some as overly conservative. A University of Washington professor told me, after I mentioned I was on the board and writing my first column about the Lenin statue, quote, I certainly loathe the editorials, citing their arch-conservative and often Trumpist line. I reject his criticism. 
I sat on the board. I was part of its arguments and conversations. Board members thought deeply and were open to new ideas and counter arguments. These were thoughtful people, and I imagined that they, often unfairly mischaracterized by ideologues, would surely stand by me as I was being smeared. Six days after my piece was published, I was relieved when my boss told me she had reviewed the Twitter conversation and concluded I had obviously not defended Hitler. I was told the company had my back. I was told the paper would not stand for a lying Twitter mob coming after one of its own. But then, just a few hours later, my boss called me and told me I was fired. The official reason for firing me was, quote, unquote, poor judgment and, quote, continuing to engage online, unquote. I shouldn't have engaged, but I admit it was hard not to defend my family against the baseless accusation that they were Nazis who had killed more than 10,000 Jews. In a statement the day after I was fired, the paper tweeted that an editorial writer engaged in Twitter recently in a way that is inconsistent with our company values. The statement added, we apologize for any pain we have caused our readers, our employees, and the community. I am well aware, as I explained in a subsequent apology, that my comparison of Lenin to Hitler was not only pointless, as John Berg just said, but potentially dangerous. White supremacists could conceivably use my words to minimize Hitler's atrocities at a time when Pew Research shows most Americans are clueless about the Holocaust, which is unbelievable, and the number of anti-Semitic attacks is rising. The thought of neo-Nazis weaponizing anything I said makes me sick. But if I'm honest, I don't think neo-Nazis follow the internecine battles of leftist Twitter. This wasn't about actual violence or actual Nazis. This was about punishing a person who, however sloppily, pointed out that evil can also emanate from those who claim to be ushering in good. I had many defenders, especially within journalism. As soon as the Times issued its statement, the paper's Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Dominic Gates expressed his anger in a since-deleted Twitter post, saying, I did not deserve this. The paper's former political editor, Joni Balter, speaking on Seattle's NPR member station KUOW, said the decision was an overreaction and that I deserved another shot. I appreciated those statements more than I can say. I considered going silent hoping one day to find work again once my 15 minutes of infamy had passed and my reputation as an unhirable Hitler guy had faded. But staying silent won't help me pay rent and childcare or salvage my ability to continue doing journalistic work. It also won't repair my good name or provide me with a clean Google search. Damn. What That damn was my own, by the way. I, I, I'm thinking about how people get labeled and it follows them forever on the internet. What kind of journalist would I be if fear made me shy away from discussing my experience of viciousness masquerading as social justice? What would it say about my devotion to injustice if I remain silent when it is visited upon my family? This is not an abstract problem. I am now jobless living in downtown Seattle, which is costly, and unable to help support my family, including my baby daughter. We can no longer afford our apartment, but neither can we afford the fee to break our lease. It was Lenin who said, 
that a lie told often enough becomes the truth. I wish I could say he was wrong, but I am comforted by the words of one of the great heroes of the 20th, 20th century, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn. Thank you, John. Okay. I, one of the great heroes of the 20th century, and I can't even say his name, which tells you how well-read I am, who wrote, let your credo be this. Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. All right. If you're interested in supporting this guy, David Yosef Volotsko is a Volotsko, I think is the, is a writer and journalist. His Substack, The Radicalist, covers communism, fascism, and other types of political extremism. You can read and support his work by subscribing at Substack. I'm a big fan of Substack. It's got just a lot of different writers. Um, what a story! What a story! Again, guys, free speech is under attack here. And it's, it's scary. And this poor man moved his entire family from Georgia to Seattle, all the way, kind of from like one corner of the country to the other. And now he's out of work and he can't support his family. Uh, I encourage you to subscribe to the free press. They don't pay me to say that. I just say it because I believe it. All right. Third and final topic, and I'll make this quick, but I, I like this. Those of you that listen to me and, and know me, know that I won't buy things made in China. And I think I'm going to start giving little plugs to companies who are made in America, to companies who make their products in America, because I so support it. And I wish some uh, venture capitalist out there would say, I'm going to start funding companies that move their stuff out of China and back to safer, saner grounds. A soap maker cracks the code to Made in America. Bath and Body Works persuaded companies throughout its supply chain to move to an Ohio city near its headquarters. And I'll just give you the nuts and bolts here. Uh, this is from New Albany, Ohio. A $7.95 bottle of Bath and Body Works foaming hand soap used to take three months, 90 days to put together. Think about that. You go to Bath and Body Works, you find a bottle of soap, $7.95. It took three months to get it to the market. The pieces had to travel more than 13,000 miles from China, Canada, and Virginia to the company's Ohio distribution center. Bath and Body Works decided it needed to get new products to market more quickly. The result was a production initiative with little parallel in corporate America. I'm so glad you guys that this is, and anyone who's offended when I say you guys get over it. Cause I'm going to continue to say it. Um, this, I'm glad, is in the Wall Street Journal. I hope more companies try to model this. Now, every step of production occurs at plants just feet from each other on the company's dedicated beauty park on the outskirts of Columbus. One factory makes the foaming pump and mechanism. Another makes the bottle itself. A third makes the label. And a fourth makes the soap, fills the bottle, attaches the label, and screws on the top. A fifth packages it. And getting a bottle to distribution is down to 21 days and a few miles. A majority of Bath and Body Works products, which are sold in its own stores, are made on site. And it last line, the effort, which started in 2008, required a lot of negotiation with sometimes skeptical suppliers. 
The campus includes 10 manufacturers and millions of square feet of production and warehouse space with 5,000 employees working there during peak production. Bath and Body Works had sales of $7.56 billion last year, increasing annual revenue by more than $2 billion since 2019. Well done, them. I think they've just made me a fan of hand soap or other stuff. Now, you guys know I use Genucel on my face and love it. But hand soap? I just love companies that are willing to say, you know what? We can do better. We can be better. I turned a free sweatshirt away the other night. I was at an event. And, oh, please take a sweatshirt. And I looked at the label. It was made in China. I won't even take a free sweatshirt made in China because I know chances are some slave labor contributed to that sweatshirt. They looked at me like I was kind of dumb. Don't care. You got to have principles in this life. All right. So there you have it. Hunter, Hitler, and Soap. All in one podcast. We're going to try to get the author of that, that former Seattle Times writer on this show um, to help him help him along. We probably disagree a lot politically. That doesn't matter in this case. I will stand for his right to say whatever he wants. And words matter in many cases, but words can rarely hurt you. Thanks for listening. I'm Michelle Tafoya. Be brave and do good. And we'll see you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.